Hey guys, it's Jason Webb. This is the show that highlights local business leaders and the movers and shakers of Minnesota. Welcome to Minnesota Made. What's up, Minnesota? It's Jason Webb. I am in Chaska, Minnesota, at a beautiful facility by the name of Ermac. No, I'm kidding. When I pulled in here, I thought I was at the wrong address, dude. Reg, you are a super cool guy. Really interesting. I am excited about this. Do I look excited, Melanie? You look excited. Yeah, this is pretty cool, man. (laughs) I've never been in a foundry. This is like old school caveman shit, straight up. <laughs> it, uh, we like it that way, so <laughs> yeah. keep, my, keep my secret. Yeah, it, yeah, it's really cool, man. So I don't know. Where do we start? So what, what do I find most interesting? It's, you know, okay, listeners, imagine there's a dude back here walking around with a big-ass ladle of melted metal, pulling it, pouring it into like a sand-type cast. Does that sound about right? Yeah. You, you got it perfect. You're, you're already a, uh, you're literally a foundry expert already, <laughs> <laughs> or at least you know as much as I do. Yeah, right, right. And we're walking around there and you're like, don't touch that. That shit's like 600 degrees. And, you know, <laughs> this is like a, a, a trillion BTU furnace right here. And uh, talking about how hot it gets back in there in the summer days and how the, the effect of having all the furnaces going in the winter. It was funny. So when you did walk in uh, with shorts on and she came in in high heels and a dress, I thought, eh, maybe <laughs> not the way I would have suggested <laughs> yeah. to come into a foundry, but you, I had you, no idea. you guys do you. Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I, you know, Ermac, I, di- I didn't know what that was to be exact. Do, were, were you aware that we're arriving at a foundry today and it's going to be like dirty, dusty and super hot? No. No? No? No. Yeah. Well, I had some inclination that it would be dirty. I figured, you know, machining and I've seen the dirtiest of machine shops, but I've never seen anything quite like this. Yeah. I've never been to a foundry. It makes me think of, wasn't the movie Rudy? Did you watch that movie, that football movie? Uh, Yep, sure did. And at the beginning of the movie where the family's working, weren't they working in a foundry? This is beyond my level of knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) You've already exceeded my movie trivia. All right. So Foundry, even if I was warned I was going to a Foundry, I wouldn't know how to dress for something like that. But yeah, you're right. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's sandy. It's hot. It's hard work, man. Oh, yeah. And you're kind of a a young, good-looking pretty boy. How the hell did this happen, man? Oh, just by you saying pretty boy right now, you have no idea the amount of shit I'm going to take for that. Oh, no. Here we are. So we'll start this yeah, yeah, really start. easy. How did you get in this, Reg? So I'll go. Let's start with a, a little bit of the beginning. We yeah. went through engineering, uh, getting out of high school, said this is a really good idea to solve some problems. After running through some of the corporate America stuff, I decided it was time to do my own thing. And I was looking for a few different businesses, came across this one for sale. The folks, Jeff and Sue Erickson that I bought it from ultimately had been in this originally started by his dad, 1944. And as they walked through, you know, walking me through more or less, I looked at it and said, this is quite literally just like I grew up with a sandbox and Tonka toys, except uh, it's a (laughs) lot more sand and there's bobcats, but ultimately not that different. But really for us, it was us being my wife and I, we could own a hundred percent by taking some SBA financing out, purchasing a business. And that was about four and a half years ago. And you know, I'm sure we'll get into more of it, but you know, since then, probably grown it four or five times. Uh, bought a few other businesses in the process, and 
really just about trying to figure out how we grow local U.S.-based manufacturing because ultimately that's why we did it at the beginning. Okay. So, you know, I, when I looked at your LinkedIn, your owner uh, of several different companies listed on there. So was this the first company that you bought coming out of the corporate world? Yep, correct. Okay. So why? Why would you, why would you be like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to, I want to be self-employed. I'm going to buy something and I'm, hell, I'm going to buy a foundry. Yeah. yeah. So a few things. One, I already mentioned, fundamentally believe in local U.S.-based manufacturing. The element of where I grew up, small town, barren, Wisconsin, both a name and a descriptor. 3,000 people, <laughs> the people that we uh, grew up with, you know, their restaurant owners, their electricians, HVAC guys, et cetera. So for me, going in corporate America and sitting in boardrooms with funny PowerPoints and Excel charts was never really my thing. Ultimately, sitting across the table from all those folks that own their own HVAC places or plumbing houses or whatever, I really wanted to do what they did. Yeah. So when I got the opportunity, just said, hey, let's figure it out. Walked in here, had never stepped foot in a foundry before I bought this place. No so, kidding. Yep. Just went in, started doing some research on it. My background, uh, M&A, or sorry, mergers and acquisitions in corporate, kind of knew how to study some of this, looked at it and said, I love the the nature of this business. I think there's some great opportunities for kind of a technical moat. Uh, customers are really sticky, meaning they're not going anywhere. And it'd be really, really hard or Im impossible actually to replicate this exact facility right here yeah. with what you can buy it for. So yeah, it was just, uh, it was one of those things where it made sense. And again, I could own a hundred percent and never have to answer to anybody again in my life. So it, uh, it yeah. worked out really well. What would, you know, I would imagine coming from a corporate executive type position and going to become self-employed uh, that had to take a leap of faith, man. And, and a lot of belief in yourself. What was that like? Were, were, were you married at the time? And yep. I don't know. Yep. Married at the time. My wife was great at playing the corporate game. I was terrible at playing politics. So it made more sense for me to do it than her. But you know, really, uh, ultimately, the best way to say it is that you take a giant leap of faith and then you try not to curl up in the corner of the bathroom with anxiety and fear and all the <laughs> sleepless nights when you realize, holy shit, I just bet fortune and uh, yeah. our retirement and everything else imaginable at 37 years old to uh, to go jump in and bet on myself. Yeah. Any regrets? Do you feel? You Absolutely not. No. I, I would uh, I would say my worst day in small business is better than my best day in corporate ever. So I, wow. I, I love doing this. It's a way you get to develop your own culture, shape people. I mean, probably with what, I don't know, we total probably have 60 employees, something like that. And okay. We went and looked one time and we figure, because a lot of the folks we have, um, immigrant type workers, you know, first generation, second generation, they send a lot of money around. So we figure somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand people that we support with wow. the 60 people that we employ. So wow. we attempt to, uh, Attempt to make sure that that's top of mind and not screw that up. Now, when you were making that decision to become self-employed, were you working with a business broker? or How did you come across this place and find out it was for sale? <laughs> There's a lot of different business bit listing websites. This yeah. one happened to come up on Biz Buy Sell. Okay. And I, there's a few people that I've been talking with that knew I was looking. And so... I found it initially through there and there was a couple other brokers that I'd been talking with saying, Hey, if something comes up, they reached out, but ultimately did this all by myself. Just uh, wow. walked out, uh, figured out how to submit an LOI, found a great attorney, found a great accountant, uh, ended up with a fantastic banker. And those guys, uh, every time I 
got scared and thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I stay in the corporate path. They went, ah, it's not really that big a deal. Just keep going. You'll be fine. <laughs> and then I got through it. And all of a sudden, January 31st, 2017, signed a business and bought this thing. 2017. Yep. So you found the right people. You had the right team behind you as far as getting the deal done. And you you came in the corporate world. It sounds like you came from uh, mergers and acquisitions. So you had some experience in that. So did that help in deciding what type of business to buy, looking at financial statements and that type of thing? Yeah, for sure. It was it was relatively easy. I'm not going to say from a standpoint of what I'd done. It, it's a little different when you're doing deals by yourself. You're more worried about am I screwing something up and missing something? You know, back in the the GE days, anytime we'd buy a business, there'd be a deal team of 40 or 50 core people and probably 130 in total that touched and looked at a deal. So wow. you're a very small input to a very large process. Here, yeah. you're the one making the go, no-go. More or less, you qualify for the loan. Uh, it's your decision to make. So as much as anything, you just second guess yourself. But I knew the process. We knew kind of generally speaking what to look for. It's just on a, everything's on a different scale. You know, yeah. you're looking at all of the uh, health and safety stuff yourself. You are making sure that the machines are in a good spot, that you understand customer concentration. Anything imaginable that you think of as you'll read in an M&A book about how to do it is normally done by someone else when you're not you're when you're in corporate. When you're here, you got to make sure you check every one of those boxes yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, getting into this type of business with really no background or experience in Foundry, yep. right? And yep. machining. And yep. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you and 99.999% of the it's people like, out there. I'm buying this massive building with all this scary looking equipment and employees and doing something that I really know nothing about. Man, was it difficult to get up to speed and uh, and learn the trade and, and the, the, the technical side of the business? So... You were out there when we walked through. You got sand dropped on your head. So really all you do is go put on your <laughs> boots and jeans and uh, the dirtiest clothes you have because if they're not dirty, they'll be out there or they will be by the time you're done and you just get out there and see what happens. You learn yourself and take some time. And honestly, the worst part about it is not learning what's going on and figuring it out. It's the first time things break. It uh, You know, oh, you think about that yeah. in corporate, you don't really worry about it. It's, oh, someone else is going to handle that, write yeah. out a check and you're good. Yeah. When uh, you have to replace uh, the head on a machine for $35,000, your second Ooh. month in business, all of a sudden, that's a check that you're writing out yourself. And you got to get <laughs> that over your head where you're like, okay, I am not $35,000 poor, really, even yeah. though I am. It's just uh, cost of doing business. But you, you don't think that way at the beginning, for yeah. sure. Yeah. What attracted you to this type of industry or this business when you decided to you know, go forward with it? Was it... The, the the financial statements the, or looking at it where it was and then somehow visioning the potential on where it could go or simply the, the location or the size or like what what was it that revisionist history would tell you that uh, I made all this perfectly in my head. Uh, the reality of the situation <laughs> was I thought that, uh, you know, we work Monday through Thursday. We work four tens and the idea of having uh a three-day weekend and that I could make a decent living doing this, uh, maybe somewhat associated or close to what I was doing in corporate from a salary standpoint, I thought, eh, I can try and make a run at this and make it work. But <laughs> in reality, it really was back. And, and I talk to people a lot about this because people hear my story and they realize how much we've grown. And when I tell them kind of the sales and margins on these places, they want to jump in. And 
the biggest issue is that four and a half or five years ago when we started it, there was a lot of people that were in this industry. I mean, I could tell you probably almost every person over the age of 60 in this country right now that could run our facilities for us. I can't tell you a single person under the age of 40 that's qualified to do it. So we have to develop everybody. I don't honestly know. We just bought a, a facility earlier this year in New Hampshire that's identical or similar to this one. And there's a bunch of different problems with it. Had we not had our knowledge and background and what we knew going through here, we probably would have gone bankrupt within the first year of being up there. That's uh, the difference. And so I'd love to tell people to do it, but this is partly why you and I were talking a little bit before, but you know, we've already acquired five of these. We've got probably another seven uh, actively in negotiations right now, but there's a, there's about 780 of these types of facilities across the country. We've talked to probably a little more than 600 of them. And the running joke is if any of these guys are ready to start selling, they just say, oh, those kids up in Minneapolis are buying uh, foundries. So, uh, yeah. you know, the guys that are in their 60s and 70s, the second and third generation folks, they they tend to give us a call and we have conversations and trying to figure it out right now. That's amazing, man. So that's where you spend most of your time. Uh, I, I didn't even ask what your title is. What do you call yourself? The CEO? Uh, yeah, it, whatever. Uh, if anyone asks me, <laughs> when, I'm out with my, when I'm out with my buddies in a bar, like uh, as soon as we get done here, that's what I'm be going to do is some golf, <laughs> fishing, and uh, and bar uh, time. But okay. when they'll ask me, what do I do? I'll tell them I'm a janitor in a foundry. Oh, so okay. it's funny. <laughs> they they laugh about the janitor, and then they ask me what a foundry is. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just, it's just the same as what we did today. Do you spend most of your time, uh, you know, your work hours spent on the merger piece, the acquisition piece, day to day? Is that yep. what? You, that's Absolutely. What you, yeah. So I spend a little bit of my time. So as when initially we bought it, uh, a lot of people interested, by all means, reach out. I'm sure you'll find contact information through the podcast here. But I'm happy to help anybody that's interested in buying a small business. I do that a lot on the side, but that's oh. part of what I is. But really, uh, it is that once you get started on figuring some of that out. Um, you know, you go from being the guy who operates it day to day to plugging in a general manager. And then once you buy multiples of these, each facility has a general manager. And then you start to develop a headquarter team with a president. And then the president slash COO runs everything day to day, deals with customers, talks with everybody else individually. Everybody kind of has a role and responsibility throughout our organization. But, you know, my time is uh, spent. I'm, I put in a big a big eight hours a week is probably a, a, a long work week for me when we're not doing acquisitions. So wow. it's, uh, it's just about, yeah, but there's actually a reason for that. People laugh um, <laughs> is that when you make decisions, you know, when you're betting two, three, five million dollars on doing a business, you uh, don't want to be wrong. So you want to spend out every time you need to make sure that you're making decisions. Because if I make five or 10 decisions a month, that's probably a lot, but everyone has a sizable impact one way or the other. Just normally most of my time, other than talking with other folks and what we're doing in acquisitions is spent talking with my team really as a sounding board as they're working through different items because I've probably done most of the jobs that they've done here and or have that experience from corporate to help us grow and shape. So I really spend time kind of the long-term strategy and what I want the organization to look like and the culture that we want to have. And then you know, the, the rest of my time on how I go get the financing and make sure that we've got all of our ducks in a row, you know, legally, accounting wise, uh, et cetera, to go make that happen as we do the acquisitions. I imagine the financing piece is getting easier and easier as you gain experience and get some yeah, assets under your belt. Right? Yeah, it's uh, so there's always this real problem in that banks love you uh, if you have 
you know, twenty million dollars, something like that. That's the uh, you know, from five million dollars to twenty million dollars, there's a gap in the in the market, which is exactly where we're sitting right now. So if you don't want to give up equity, it's a lot of conversations with family offices talking about how are we going to do this for uh, debt financing only and not trying to pay mes debt level, um, if at all. So. You know, there's a there's an interesting little gap that we're we're dealing with exactly right now. So I spend an inordinate amount of my time right now trying to find financing, and then you know it's a little different. If you want uh, short term money, it'd be easy. You know, you go get. When I initially started this, no bank would talk to me. Now, you know, it, uh, we joke. I probably couldn't get a hundred million dollars uh, this week for equipment financing, but I could probably get ten million dollars this week if I needed it for equipment financing. But wow. Acquisitions is a little different. So it's always, uh, if you don't have the assets, it's always fun to go uh, try and figure that out. But yeah, that, that's a rabbit hole. We can go deep, yeah. deep down because I'm <laughs> living that hell right yeah. now. Gotcha. Oh boy. <laughs> so bring me back to day one, man. So you close on, on the business or Mac and uh, you roll up here. You are the now the proud owner and you walk in the door the first day. Can you kind of paint me a picture of what this business you know looks like, what it's doing, the number of employees, and uh, the type of products you're making, or, or what have you. Sure. And then, how does that compare to today? Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, let's start pulling up the first day. You're still in that kind of euphoria um, <laughs> honeymoon stage. About thirty days later, all of a sudden, you're in that. Oh my god, I really owe a lot of money on a business. I need to figure this out. So we'll start with day one, though. Okay. Uh, you know, you're rolling up. It, it's it's fantastic. You realize, like, holy shit, man, I uh, I, I own that place right now. So that's <laughs> that's a really weird feeling. I won't lie to you. That is a very very odd uh, situation to be in. And you know, for us at the time, we probably had thirteen or fourteen employees. I think that if I think about what we had within the four walls. About half of the equipment that we have in here right now, wow. probably doing a quarter of the sales, roughly. Wow. So, you know, four and a half years later, everything back then we didn't have formal systems. It was very, very lightly planned. We would print orders out. The guys would throw things up on the board. They decide what they want to make, when they want to make it, how many of them they would want to make. Just need to get it out on time, but. Probably we're at 50 or 60 percent of capacity, so we could have what we call sprint capacity to get that done today it has to be a nearly perfectly planned machine for lack of a better term where everything is electronic. We know exactly when something has to go on a machine at what time in what order in order to get the the monthly numbers out that we have to get. And so that's been going to be an interesting time, especially during the labor shortages right now, because we cannot find people. And the interesting part is, you know, we've got guys in this place that probably start at $60,000 a year. You know, you have a high school education. You want to show up there and do that work. You'll make 60 grand. Uh, after a few years, you do really good. You'll make six figures in this place. Wow. wow. So. 60 grand out of high school, no training, nothing. Just show up. I'll teach you. Well, let me rephrase. I won't teach you. Someone will teach you. <laughs> and now you that, get that, to play in the sand. Exactly. That, uh, but don't, don't, don't be mistaken. That sixty grand is going to require uh, overtime and a lot, a lot of hard work uh, on that one hundred twenty degree pour deck. It's no joke. Mm. Yeah, it, you know, you mentioned you threw us some numbers during that tour. When it's a hot day outside and the uh, the furnaces are blasting back there, what were you say? How hot can it get back there? Yeah, we'll we'll easily see over one hundred twenty degrees on our pour deck. 
So whether poor deck meaning where the guys carry those 40 pound ladles of molten metal you were talking about, oh, yeah. carry that across. They, they look like Popeye very frequently. The, the, the good news <laughs> is, is once you work out there, they get rid of their gym memberships. So it's, uh, it's oh, not yeah. a problem out there, but yeah, it, those do the, the furnaces we have, I think I was telling you about seven of them each doing 3 million BTUs plus our furnaces and or the actual heating of this place in January, we can easily get into the 30 million BTU type level, but yeah, once you get the 1,450-degree metal plus 100 degrees or 80 or 90 degrees outside, it gets real, real warm in this place no matter what you do. Yeah. And uh, so during the, the tour, you're trying to explain to me how these end products are kind of made. So I I, I kind of get it, man, but I'm going to screw up the terms. <laughs> but the, the way no I, you know, I would you know, tell my, my son about this, it's like they got these metal plates with uh, – configurations on them then they kind of make a form or mold and pack that with sand and pack the sand down real tight and make like a negative impression pull those plates away and then pour melted metal into these sand casting type form things that metal solidifies push it off of a like a little deck the sand breaks away and there's your product that you end up you know polishing up and machining later right something like that exactly Ah, and then you know the end (laughs) i forgot to hit on that part but yeah then the end parts you're talking about we dump off could be everything from what you saw all the deer stands we're making uh parade if there anyone that's a golf golfer out there all the golf ball washers uh, we make so anything from playground equipment to stuff that holds up railroad crossing signs plumbing equipment aerospace medical you you name it we can make it in here it's 80 or 90, if you look at something, any construction project, any machine out there, you know, you're talking 80 or 90% of products out in the world have castings on in some way, shape, or form. Holy cow, that many. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was surprised to learn, too, that if you, if you, if I wanted a part made rather than hire a machine shop to do it, and they're going to charge me 100 bucks or whatever to make that part, if you, if I could make that part, during the, I don't know, what do you call it? The foundry, the, the casting process? Yep, cat, yep, casting. Metal, metal casting. Yep, metal exactly casting right. process. It, it can dramatically cut the cost to make that part. Sure. Yeah, we, anytime we see fasteners, welds, multiple parts that are being assembled, fabricated, typically at a minimum, especially if you have to hog out a lot of metal in a machine shop, you're talking anywhere from three to 10 times less expensive. And then you don't have all those individual spots. So you have a pure wall thickness, uh, you know, from a, I guess, a, a looks perspective. You don't have mm-hmm. any voids. You don't have any sharp edges. You don't have a weld on something. You know, if you, especially if you ask me to weld something, it's going to look really bad. But yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we do a lot of conversions from weldments or anything else that they're doing in a hogging out of a machine shop, what they would do without mm-hmm. a billet into a casting. Okay. Now, what do you contribute the growth to? Now, I, I know you've done some acquisitions but just at this location you've gone from what 13 to like 70 employees in four and a half years <laughs> yeah is that, so, sound, is that all right yeah it uh, i mean it, it you're, yeah it's four times ish so you're somewhere around there but yeah the main i would say customer service would be the easy one we've still never sold a product a day in our life i've never i've made some cold calls initially in the beginning none of them ever turned out all of our growth <laughs> has come through Really just word of mouth. So we would make sure that you know, you'll see layered all over the walls around here. Uh, is uh, We have a really simple thing, and it's every manager knows it. Make decision-making in this order. It's health and safety of employees. 
customer service, it's quality products, deliver those quality products on time, and then worry about profit. And they go down that entire list. So really take care of your employees, take care of your customers, ship quality products on time. And we've never, like I said, never had to sell a product a day in our life. It's, uh, it's just making sure that we can get it, get it through and get partners that, uh, and that's what we typically refer to our, our customers as our partners, because there's value added on both sides. And so we find the right folks that make sense for us to deal with. And once they do, as those, you know, they'll be buyers or engineers or whatever it might be, they'll move around from company to company and they'll say, hey, we worked with Ermac back here. Hey, give these guys a call. Instead of doing this out of machining, we should do this out of castings or, oh, you guys are having problems with other foundries. Go, let's uh, let's shift this stuff to Ermac and I'll introduce you guys. So it's happened a lot for us. So I thought you were going to say, well, I hired a big sales team and they have a silver tongue and they just uh, called and, and signed up a bunch of new accounts. But it sounds like you just focused on the people and the end product and doing, you know, performing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm a terrible salesperson. I hate trying to sell anything. <laughs> if I can't provide value to a customer, I don't want to do it. I just, I don't like being told no to begin with. And I certainly uh, don't want to go over promise something. So it's normally much more of a give us a chance. We'll figure it out. And then we go from there. All right. So uh, what's the future going to look like here? You're going to continue to gobble up more foundries and build an empire. Is that, is that your, is that your <laughs> yeah. end game here? Yeah. So, you know, kind of in the M&A space, they'd call this rolling up foundries, which if you go look at my Twitter feed, we say we're building in public. I'm literally documenting uh, this journey as we go through it. But we look at roughly speaking, this size facility every three or four hours. So our customers are very bifurcated. There is a corporate customer, Fortune 500, will deal with a small end of their parts. They might be buying $10 million worth of parts from foundries overseas and a couple hundred thousand dollars from parts uh, from us. They don't care where we build it in the country. Build it, ship it. As long as you deliver it on time, we don't care. The other side of our customer base is the local small guys. You know, you saw the deer stands out there, for instance. That's a great friend and a great customer of ours that's local. Those guys love, and a lot of the other customers we picked up, they want to be within three or four hours. So they want to be able to get up in the morning, you know, send their kids off to school, drive here, have lunch, see their products, uh, shake hands, do whatever, and then be able to drive back home. So in order to do that, you know, we're really looking from the Rocky Mountains to, uh, to the East Coast can just draw a bunch of concentric circles. So every roughly six to eight hours, so it's no more than a three or four hour drive in between, we want to be within 90% of casting buyers in the country. So with that, that probably means, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven, eight, nine locations. So, you know, here, somewhere south of Chicago, somewhere eastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, somewhere in that range. We're already in New Hampshire. We'll do something else further down in the East Coast uh, somewhere than probably somewhere in the Carolinas, kind of sweeping back around probably as far west as Denver. And and what we normally do is we'll find one kind of base. Uh, then we find who that best customer or sorry, that best foundry is in that area. We'll talk to vendors. We'll talk to customers. We'll talk to whomever to get, understand their reputation. Buy one and then we'll buy up two or three other ones in that space, tuck them under the original one that we bought. And, uh, you know, kind of exactly what you see here, just replicate that seven or eight more times. Can I bring you back a little bit? Sure. So since there's no college major of mergers and acquisitions, right? <laughs> how did you get into that piece? Uh, there are people that are much smarter than me. I will say that I I started on the side of the business strategy portion. And what that means is you take a look of 
what you do as a company. You look at what your competitors are doing. You look at the general space of what could happen. So emerging technology or what might be happening in geopolitical elements. It never, it, it does, it's just a lot of information you put together and you decide, hey, over the next five years, this is where I think we need to go to a business. And then you say, okay, if, if we're going to get there in five years, walk your way back. And what do you have to do by year four, year three, year two, or year one? So once you get that in and then you say, okay, we can do this, what we call organically or inside the business. And then there's a space where you'd say, okay, we're going to need a leap there. So inorganic, inorganic is where mm -hmm. you need to go plug in an acquisition. So I used to lay out that map of where we're going to go from a business strategy standpoint and then dealt with these guys who were bankers and worked on Wall Street, worked at venture capitalists, et cetera. Um, and I just learned from them mainly through osmosis, but really for me, even in what you do in a small business, you don't really look at the actual M&A like from a dollars and cents standpoint. That's what a lot of your accountants and business brokers and you know whatever it might be from the bank, understanding whether or not you can afford it. And so really beyond that, you're looking at quality of earnings and some just some simple things like is there customers, you know, if a business has 50% of their sales in one customer, that's a major issue. Mm -hmm. You want to oh, run yeah. to the hills with that. <laughs> oh, or yeah. Take a giant risk adjusted uh, you know, mm. discount on that business. So yeah, it's really just, uh, I can say best through osmosis of understanding and doing some reading. And along the way, I also picked up an MBA, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately as a requirement <laughs> of one of the, uh, one of the businesses I work for. So it was a, it was just an interesting element of you just put it all together and jump in and learn. So did you have a mentor that helped you Lots along the way? Uh, that's why I'm trying to document in public and trying to give as many people advice, help, whatever I can do as possible. Because for me, that's uh, that's one of those things that if I can figure out how to give back for all the help that I got, that's at a minimum. That's at, at a very minimum what I can do to help those folks. Amen. Let's say that again. You're giving back in what way? You're documenting your journey through this process, but you also mentioned that if anybody has any questions or needs some help as far as buying their own small business, yep. that uh, you'd make yourself available to them? Absolutely, yeah. So you can find me LinkedIn. You can go to the, the website. Ermac is a main one, but on, you'll see all the different businesses we own linked across the top there. But yeah, the uh, the Twitter handle, at Reg Zeller, R-E-G-Z-E-L-L-E-R. Um yeah, my marketing agency and a bunch of my buddies said, hey, instead of doing this one-on-one, -on -one, why don't you just jump out there and talk about what you're doing? And it's amazing where just only started doing this a couple of months ago, but probably helped, I don't know, 10 or 12 people already in the last wow. Uh, wow, month cool. or two just figuring out how to how to get out of here. So understanding what you can and can't do and you know how do you do it? How do you actually go from that uh, W-2 paycheck every other week to betting on yourself and what the process is and there's a lot of play. You can go pay people to do this stuff. I'm, I'm not, I refuse to take money for any of this. I just want to help out because I've been through the process so many times. It's not nearly as daunting as what it looks. It's a little more of a paint by numbers, start down the process, get down the path. And yeah, there'll be some scary nights. There'll be some scary, uh, anxiety ridden elements, but yeah. it's, uh, it's pretty easy. And especially if you have people that have gone through it numerous times to say, yeah, don't worry. That's a pitfall. And once in a while you have to say, yeah, the oven is hot and you're still going to want to touch it. But <laughs> or, or in this case, the casting is hot. You want to touch that. Uh, no, the same 600 way. degrees. <laughs> stay away. Exactly. Uh, okay. You know, before we wrap this up, um, did I forget anything that you want to bring up during this podcast? Or Melanie, do you have any additional questions that you want to ask Reg? No? 
I'm good. Uh, no, this is, uh, you know, as long as I didn't screw this up for you. I think, uh, <laughs> no, it's go, great, yeah. man. It's super. I mean, we, we got you dirty, so yeah. I pretty much <laughs> accomplished that. I convinced you that there's foundries actually still left in this country. Albeit, <laughs> you know, we've lost about 80% in the last 50 years, but there's a few of us still oh, kicking wow. around. So. Yeah, I feel like I went back to like the 1700s or something like that, like a blacksmithing like shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like that. Why, why is there a decrease in foundries? It, it seems like... You know, if I'm making a, a deer stand and if I can do it for uh, less money than a, t- a typical machine shop or something, well, where's all, where are all the foundries going? Why the, is that, do you think? I mean, they in the past, historically, they've all gone overseas, right? Oh, I mean, that's okay. been a, gotcha. a big gotcha. move over. Um, now it's, you know, they. I think there's a lot of companies and customers, partners that are finding out right now that isn't all that it's... Uh, uh, all that it was worth, if it's and uh, you know, it's clear that you know you go buy overseas, it's going to be cheaper than buying from me. But also, you're going to get a product from me in four weeks, and it's going to be a quality product. And if you need more because you have a run on it, we'll get you stuff that you can put on the shelf and sell. And so we've brought a lot of customers uh, that were doing business in China, in India, Mexico, et cetera, That you've actually seen some of the products today. Um, that. Mm. They're, they used to be over there, and now they're being made here. And these guys, even though the price went up and they had to charge more, you know, they slapped that made in the USA on it. And at the same time, those parts are always on the shelf for them. So they're, yeah. they're making more money for That's awesome. It. Yeah, that, I think I feel like in today's political climate, that whole made in the USA, it, it means more now than what I can remember in my life. Definitely. You know what yeah. I mean? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's it's good. We need we need to continue to have these places and these jobs going forward, and it's ultimately, like I said, it's a big reason why we did it. All right, great. I don't have my a business card in front of me of you, Red, but um, <laughs> let's put it in the show me, notes, as they say, right? Okay. Well, um, so let me wrap this up. Reg Zeller, CEO of Ermac, and uh, you are on a killer, dude. Uh, you, you haven't been in this business long and you are making your mark for sure. Not only in this location, but you, you have plans for dominating the country in, in the foundry world, it sounds like. And I love your giving uh, mentality. Uh, you know, you feel like you've been somewhat blessed along the way and helped out. And uh, you want to give back to the local community or anybody that's, I guess, asking for help. And uh, that, that that's a great thing. So, What's the website here uh, uh, if they want to check it out? Yeah, ermac.com. Like I said, that's the easiest one, E-R-M-A-K.com. And okay. uh, from up there, you'll see all the other companies. You'll see our, our holding company, Canecast, uh, everything else that we have up there. And then, like I said, you go uh, run over to Twitter. You'll see all my musings of uh, whatever happens, yeah. both good and bad. We post both wins and losses up there so people understand that, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough road to hoe, but it's a lot of fun to do it. <laughs> well, I'm not a Twitter it. person, but I might have to uh, get an account set up and yeah, check it out. Yeah, man. You, you, can, you can join this century. Uh, I, <laughs> I think I hate my marketing team for uh, jumping me into this thing, but it yeah. is what it is. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time, Reg. Uh, I'm really impressed. You should be proud of yourself, and uh, I'm expecting great things out of you, man. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks for the kind words. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. That's it, guys. If you know of a Minnesota business leader or a mover and shaker that you feel would be a great guest, please have them go to minnesotamadepodcast.com and have them apply for the show. Thanks for listening, Minnesota.